Okay, let's get started. Thank you, Curtis. I, I, my uh, way of thinking about things, kind of given my training, is to think of things in the form of questions. And so that's why I have all these questions in your notes. <clears throat> and we will discuss what did God do and when did he do it as we go through this lesson. And there's a bunch of, you know, we... I guess I started doing this in the first or second week about all these, uh, the acronym TULIP that everybody is somewhat familiar with. And it was really introduced apparently, best anyone can tell. And some people have done, really scouted this out and have determined that the, probably about in the early, like about 1903, someone came up with this acronym and it seemed to fit. A lot of people blame it on Calvin, but really it, it happened long after Calvin. And, uh, but the, so there are all kinds of things. Well, we're going to deal with this and probably be referring to it repeatedly as unconditional election because of all the descriptives in the tulip. This one is the most accepted by, by later commentators. They, they use some other things. Uh, God's sovereign choice. R.C. Sproul calls it God's sovereign choice. Um, Thomas Schreiner uh, calls it divine election, unconditional choice. A man named Greg Forster who wrote a, a book called The Joy of Calvinism. And uh, interesting, and I'll be referring to this sermon a little bit later in the notes, Pastor Spurgeon in the eight, about 1863, I think it was, he called this God's strange choice. And you'll see why when we get there if you haven't read ahead in the notes. I should have said something last week, and I did not, about the questions that you may have as we go through this study. Feel free to bring them to me after the class, but I'm forgetful. And so it would help if you would, and you don't have to come up and see me with the questions afterwards. I'll thank you for some who do. It would be helpful if you would write those questions down and give them to me, give them to Evan, send them by email, however, so that at the appropriate time in the teaching, we can try to answer your questions. And actually, I hope before the end of this class, we will have a time when you can even do that here. But it's helpful to have the questions in advance so that we can try to answer them in advance. Now, I would be shocked, frankly, and, and most, most likely I'm going to ask Evan to answer the questions, by the way. So that's one, another reason to put them in writing so I can punt them. Uh, we would be shocked if there are no questions about some of these issues. I would be personally just, <laughs> it would be amazing if there were no questions. So don't be bashful. Bring your questions so we can try to answer them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this topic we're going to talk about this morning, I believe is firmly established in the revelation you've given to us of yourself. It's firmly established. But because of who we are, <clears throat> it is my, I, I've come to the conclusion, we resist this truth. We resist it for many reasons. There's been confusion, perhaps, a lack of study of the word, perhaps. And underneath all of that is our indwelling sin that resists anything that would take glory away from us or merit away from us 
or our contribution away from us. Because we're convinced by the enemy of our souls that we should be the deciding factor in these matters of salvation. So Lord, open our minds by the Spirit and teach us and we'll be grateful. In Jesus' name. Before we get into this second petal of the tulip, I'll call it, unconditional election, we need to be reminded of the standard for study we are undertaking. The first week of this study quoted from our Constitution and Bylaws, Statement of Faith, Lakeview Christian Center. If you're a member, you signed off on this. Now, maybe you want to take it back. We'll talk about that. This is Member Sunday. I guess it could be Unmember Sunday, I suppose, if we wanted to do that. But I hope you won't. The Word of God has to be the standard against which we measure these doctrinal truths. That standard still applies. I'm not going to read it. It's in your notes. But whatever I say, whatever I read from what anyone else has said, the ultimate reference point, the standard by which anything here taught must be measured is God's word, God's revelation of himself. And that applies to this doctrine of unconditional election. First, what is election? Turn to Wayne Grudem. I put his simple... Wayne Grudem, I find, if you don't have his systematic theology book, you should get it. It should be on your shelf. You don't have to read all the way through. But when you have questions, it's okay to read all the way through, but it's, I don't know, 1,600 pages. But you can look at the index, and you can find answers to many of the questions you might have about theology. His simple definition, he has a way of making things, I think, simple. Election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his, God's, sovereign good pleasure. That's what Grudem has said about this truth. And now, We want to go behind him and see what the word has to say, consistent with our our agreed starting point, our standard. You will find this truth about election so many places in the Bible that we couldn't possibly exhaust them this morning. Um, If I tried to exhaust them, we'd all be in trouble and we'd be here for a long time and I would run out of words because I don't know all of them. But let's provide some key foundational passages of Scripture. First, let's look at Paul's letter to the saints who are in Ephesus, which is how Paul addressed them in Ephesians chapter 1. And here's what he said to them and to us, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will. There are are a bunch of um, synonyms for election. And predestination, you'll see, chosen, election, appointed, 
So when we see these words in reference to us as believers, it's, those words are describing and talking about election. Okay. First, we see here in our passage in Ephesians that God chose. He elected these saints and Paul, and that includes all of us, those who have believed as well. And you can, you can take my word for that or read on through the amazing statements in Ephesians in which Paul tells them in chapter 2, verse 19, they are, the Ephesians, fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So if we are fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God, this passage is for us as well. And when, God, when did God do this choosing? Before, and this is amazing to many of us, we think it happened at an altar somewhere within the last, some of you in the last year, some of you 20, 50 years ago, like, or 70, like me. That's what we tend to think. No, he said before the foundation of the world. At that time, God chose us to be, and this is amazing, holy and blameless. At that time, before, uh, before the foundation of the world, God, quote, predestined us for adoption close quote, as his children. Praise God. I don't think you can read through the first chapter of Ephesus, Ephesians, the letter to the believers at Ephesus. You, can't, you can understand when you read through it, it's kind of, you have to take a deep breath if you're going to read through the first chapter because it's really all one sentence. Is it any wonder that Paul can't contain himself and in the middle of it he says, he, 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 he commends the glory of God. Now, what about the unconditional part of unconditional election? Paul answers that question as well in the same letter, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, when he writes, This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. What glorious, humbling good news. But how in the world could Paul write that as a result of this choosing, we would be holy and blameless. How could he say that? In light of what we learned even last week, hopefully in this class, about our dead, corrupt condition. Me and you described as holy and blameless? How is that possible? The answer is in two little powerful words repeated in different ways in this passage. In him. In Christ. Again, praise God, the holy, perfect God looks at his perfect son, our Savior, and sees us, the ones he has chosen, in him. Perfect, holy, blameless. And did you notice that word predestined that occurred in verses 5 and 11 of Ephesians chapter 1? Two related words are destiny and destination. You hear a lot about the word destiny. It's used a lot in You'll hear it in the news, or you'll hear it in some of the political speeches that are made. Destiny, it's our destiny, it's our destiny. God is the one who is in control of our destiny. Now, these saints were chosen and predestined to be children of God. Even though predestination is technically, and I'm not going to go there this morning, but it's technically a broader term that includes election, here in chapter 1 of Ephesians, Paul is using these two words, chose 
elected, and predestined interchangeably as he speaks of God's chosen ones for salvation, adoption, and redemption. R.C. Sproul helpfully describes this truth in the quote is in your notes. He wrote, in its most basic sense, predestination has to do with the question of destiny. A destiny or a destination is a point toward which we are moving but have not yet reached. When we book airline tickets, we do not book them to nowhere. Now, I, boy, when I read that, I had to, my mind went back. I once was persuaded years ago, I hate voyages, I, I don't, cruises don't appeal to me. Some of the, if they appeal to you, that's fine. I, but we booked a cruise to nowhere. I thought it was silly, and it was, and it was a miserable experience, but that's... <laughs> but typically, we don't book trips to nowhere. We have a destination in mind, a place we are trying to reach. When we add, back to the quote, when we add the prefix pre to destination, we speak of something that takes place prior to or before the destination. The pre of predestination relates to the question of time. In biblical categories, predestination clearly takes place not only before we believe in Christ, and not only before we were even born, but from all eternity, before the universe was ever created. The agent of predestination, the travel agent, is God. In his sovereignty, he predestinates. Human beings are the object of his predestination. In short, predestination refers to God's sovereign plan for human beings decreed by him in eternity. And let's look at the passage that Keith has been using. I don't know if he'll use it again this morning or not to demonstrate the truth of unity in diversity. Within the last few weeks, I know we have referred to this passage, but I want to look at it a little bit differently this morning. First Corinthians Chapter 1, verses 26 through 29. Listen carefully to this language. And by the way, this concept of election is buried in Scripture from beginning to end in this same way. And you, you'll just pass over and say, well, that doesn't have... No, this has to do with election. Listen, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose... What is foolish in the world to shame the wise? God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. When we look at this passage carefully, who is Paul writing to? Who is he writing to? The church at Corinth. Brothers, he says. Paul is writing to the church, believers, flawed believers, to be sure, if you read the whole letter, but believers. And see what he says. God chose them. They did not choose God. Pastor Spurgeon, in his own strong way, using this text, preached for an hour on this topic in a message called God's Strange Choice. Some men are saved and some men are not saved. It remains as a fact never to be questioned that some enter into eternal life and some pursue the evil way and perish. How is this difference caused? How is it that some mount to heaven? The reason why any sink to hell is their own sin and only their sin. They will not repent. They will not believe in Christ. They will not turn to God and therefore they perish willfully by their own act and deed. But how is it others are saved? Whose will is it that has made them to differ? 
the text, 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29, three times, most indisputably answers the question. It says not man has chosen, but it says three times, God has chosen. God has chosen. God has chosen. The grace which is found in any man and the glory and eternal life to which any attain are all the gifts of God's election and are not bestowed according to the will of man. Here are some additional scriptures that clearly teach election, God's choosing, electing, or predestinating some people to eternal life based on God's own will and purpose and not based on any conditions of some contribution, some work, some merit earned by those people God declares to be his people. Deuteronomy 7, from the middle of verse 6 to, through verse 8. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Then Matthew 24, 31. Who does Jesus tell us the Son of Man will be returning in the clouds to gather to himself? It says, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. In John 15, 16, Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, tells his followers, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. And then in Acts 13, 48, it reads, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Who is it that believed? Though as many as were appointed to eternal life. Notice the ones appointed to eternal life were the ones who believed. God did the appointing, choosing, electing. And as a result, his people believed. Romans 11, verses 5 and 6, after reminding the readers about what God had told Elijah, you'll remember the story when Elijah was complaining, he was the only one left of all God's people of faith in Israel. You remember the terrible times? I believe it was the times of Ahab and Jezebel. Paul, writing about that to the church at Rome, says, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And then in the next verse, Romans eleven seven, 7, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. 1 Thessalonians 5, chapter 5, verse 9. For God had not destined us for wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, who's he speaking to there? He's speaking to the church at Thessalonica, believers. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you 
as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Then in 1 Peter 1.1, Peter writing, he uh, right in the beginning, he says who he's writing to. He say, says who he is writing to. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Later in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he calls these same readers a chosen race. And he was speaking of those elect exiles. They were as we are who have believed in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross for our salvation, a chosen race. The chosen race, by another description, are God's adopted children from everywhere with no distinction no distinction except God's purposes to have a chosen people. We already read it in Ephesians 1.5 that, th- that this was, quote, according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace. And that raises the next question that commonly comes to our natural mind when we consider this amazing truth that is hard to accept. If some of you have not already this morning begin to say, oh, but, oh, but, oh, but, I'd be, sh- I'd be shocked. Here's what comes to mind for some. Is God unjust when it comes to election? Is this really fair? I could jump ahead, but I won't. Uh, well, I will. Who are, you, old, who are you, old man, to tell the potter how to make the vessel? Amen. Who are you? Job learned this lesson. Read it. I believe it's chapters 39, 40, and 41. What has been described as the most comprehensive passage of Scripture on the issue of unconditional election is in Romans chapter 9. Using the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as examples in the discussion of salvation. And we're just going to look at verses 10 through 16, but let me put it in context before, before you start reading those verses. Listen to the context, unless you, want to, unless you already know the context, then feel free to read. But I want you to hear the context. Paul has completed those glorious promises related to salvation that are set out in Romans 8. Amazing chapter. No condemnation for those in Christ. Heirs with Christ. Future glory and present hope in the Spirit. God's everlasting love to those in Christ that no one, no power can take away. No one can snatch them out of his hands. And finally, we are more than conquerors. Nothing can separate us, those in Christ, from that everlasting love. If you can read chapter 8 of Romans without starting to praise, uh, shame on you. You should be bursting with praise when you read those wonderful verses. Paul then recognizes, right at the he already knew it, but he starts writing about it in the beginning of chapter 9, the plight, the apparent destiny of the majority of his kindred in the flesh, those who are the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And most of them have not accepted. In fact, later you'll read in 9 and 10 and 11, we won't go there, that they were hardened. Most of them 
have not accepted God the Father's provision of his only begotten Son as the full and final sacrifice that could once for all forgive their sin and guilt and reconcile them to God. And as a result of that realization, Paul has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart, verse 2. His anguish is so great that Paul expresses, in my words, if it would do any good that he, Paul, would be willing to suffer God's wrath in hell, be cut off from Christ, if it would result in the salvation of his fellow Jews. But as the ESV Study Bible notes, and I'm quoting from it, he knows this would achieve nothing, for none but Christ could be any person's substitute to bear God's wrath. And that once for all, substitutionary sacrifice had already occurred and Paul could not add to it. And neither can we by anything we do, by the way. It's in that context that Paul calls to mind the history of God's dealing with his people. First, Abram. An idol worshiper was called out of present-day Iraq or of Chaldees by the true God. He was chosen and called to a place he didn't know. God made sure that Abram heeded the call. And then God made huge promises to Abram that he would be the father of many nations. You remember the story. God changed Abram's name to Abraham and promised him a son. Then, second, the son of promise, Isaac, the elect one, was a miraculous conception. I think we would all agree to that. And very often that miraculous conception is somehow related to Jesus Christ, and it is a, shadow, a foreshadowing of that, but it's something else too. It's a foreshadowing of the miracle that is now required for the new birth in Christ by you and by me of lost, helpless, weak sinners who are hostile to God, enemies of God. But the third patriarch is the real focus of Romans 9. The real focus is on Jacob. And I'm reading now from, you follow with me, verses 10 through 16, with that context and that background. When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done, done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, who is him who calls? God. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. By the way, let me just inject here. Some people really stumble at that. But you know, God has a holy hatred. This is a holy hatred. This is not an unholy hatred. This is not a hatred that would come out of man. This is God's hatred. Okay? Keep that in mind. And God does not hate anything good. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. I think in the King James it says, God forbid. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion so that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Wow. 
Do you have the same naturally reactionary objection to that passage that I do? This runs directly contrary to my natural sense of justice. I admit it. But let's make sure that we let God's word speak God's truth to us. God is really, after all, God. Let's take this passage apart with the able help of James Montgomery Boyce's book, Doctrines of Grace. I'm going to pull out some salient parts of his analysis of this clear teaching on election. The teaching on election from Scripture in Romans 9 is inspired by the Holy Spirit and written by the Apostle Paul. But I think Dr. Boyce excellently pulls this apart in his commentary, so I'm going to read some of it. He says, first, Jacob and Esau were born of the same Jewish parents. So this is not a case of one having been chosen on the basis of a better ancestry. For some of us, aren't you glad? (laughs) Second, the choice of Jacob rather than Esau went against the normal standards of primogeniture, which is the right to inherit and be blessed as the firstborn. Esau actually emerged from Rebekah's womb first. In spite of that, however, Jacob was chosen. There's nothing to explain this except God's right to dispose of the destinies of human beings as he pleases. Third, the choice of Jacob was made before either child had an opportunity to do either good or evil. This means, we cannot miss it, that election cannot be on the basis of anything done by us. Moreover, and get this, Paul argues the choice of Jacob rather than Esau was made specifically to teach election, quote, in order that God's purpose in election might stand. Paul goes on in verses 14 through 16 to ask and answer the obvious question to his Holy Spirit-inspired teaching. Question, is God unjust? Answer, by no means. And then Paul goes back to the experience recorded in Exodus chapter 33, verse 19, where God told Moses he would have mercy on whom he, God, would have mercy. God was telling Moses, and Paul is here teaching us that when God shows mercy, it is because he, God, has chosen to do so. Everything we have in salvation from God depends not on our will or our working, but on his mercy. This truth is hammered home to us in a song we sometimes sing entitled, Thank You for the Cross. In the bridge of that song, there's there's an admission in the bridge of that song that we do not like to make. Every one of us deserves to die. But you save all who hope in your great love. Jesus, thank you for the cross. We know this, but we need to be reminded that God's mercy and grace are not owed. By definition, these are gifts that are undeserved. God owed, grace owed would not be grace It would be a debt. And I thought about this. Who would legitimately argue that God owes them a debt? Maybe God does owe us a debt. I thought about this. Maybe God does owe me a debt. 
But apart from Christ's work on the cross, it's not a, it is a debt of justice and of judgment that we really would rather not have him pay. The debt he owes us of justice and judgment, I don't think any of us wants. That's every one of us deserves to die. And that's the truth of God's word, hard as it is for us to take. If we think we are owed something, we are harboring secret pride. R.C. Sproul describes this thought as a gross insult to God's grace and a monument to our arrogance. Our recommended resource proof has this to say about Romans 9. In fact, they had a lot to say, and I just hope you're reading the book. But they wrote this on page 75 of the book. God made this determination simply so that his own purpose in election might stand. When God determined in eternity past those he would enliven and call to himself, he didn't make his determination on the basis of any desire or effort that he foresaw in any of us, Romans 9.16, God made this decision for his own glory to accomplish his own purpose in his own way. And once again, Paul left the question of why God doesn't save everyone as a mystery. Romans 9.19-29 and 11.33-36. So should we, it is as a 16th century pastor and theologian named so should we, let me stop that way so you understand what he's saying. So should we leave it as a mystery. As theologian named John Calvin once pointed out, better to limp along the path clearly revealed in God's word than to rush at full speed outside it by speculating about perplexities that God has left as mysteries. There's so much we could talk about. But as I said in our first week, my prayer and hope is that you would be moved by the Holy Spirit to dig into God's word for yourself and be enriched by that digging to find nuggets of truth that will bless you. We might naturally and resist, and I think it is natural to resist God's truth of election until he persuades us by the Holy Spirit in his word that some are chosen for salvation while others are passed by and judged for their sin But when we look closer, we will find, I believe, that God is just, full of mercy, and deserving of worship. This great truth was described by Pastor Boyce as he wrote, and I I always think about this when I've read through his book several times. As he wrote these words days before his death, I'm sure words that he had ruminated on and thought about and probably preached about for years. But his description written in days before his death is preserved for us in his book, Doctrines of Grace. And I have the quote, he, God, glorifies his name in displaying wrath towards sinners and the riches of his glory towards those who are being saved because this is the only right thing for God to do. If we object to this, then our objection shows that we are operating by a different standard. Hence Paul's confrontational question. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Romans 9.20 What are the benefits of election? This doctrine has great benefits for us as believers, despite our natural resistance. 
First, God loves humility. And when we clearly understand that there is nothing that commended us to God and that it is only by his merciful grace we are saved, then pride has to go and humility has to grow. Second, election encourages our love for God rather than for ourselves. To the extent that we have any notion that there is something within us, some merit, some righteous leaning that contributed to our salvation, then by that very same amount, our love for God is diminished and replaced by self-love, which has to diminish our love for God. And third, election will enrich our worship. I don't know if you've noticed this or not. I have. When I read this, it just, something went off in my brain. And I wish I'd had more time to find more of the songs I'm about to talk about. When we sing doctrinally rich songs that highlight God's sole contribution to our salvation, something inside me, and I suspect inside you, resonates. Let me mention a few. I mentioned one of them already. Thank you for the cross. The first verse of that song. Enemies of God with no excuse, knowing what was right, we turn from you, given up to sin, condemned to die. Even then you chose to give us life. Jesus, thank you for the cross. When I sing that, it resonates in me. Why? Because it's telling me the truth about God's salvation. (laughs) The most popular song in Christendom. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Not I once was lost, but I found you. No, I once was lost, but now I'm found by you. Was blind, but now I see. Those great truths about God's salvation resonate deep inside me, and I think they do you as well. Depth of mercy. Can there be mercy reaching, reaching even me? God the just, his wrath forbears. Me the chief of sinners spares. So many times my heart has strayed from his kind and perfect ways. Making clear my desperate need for his blood poured out for me. This great truth of God's election for his own purpose. Loving us for no reason in us immeasurably enriches our worship. Fourth, contrary to some false teaching out there, election encourages us in our evangelism. Some have tried to argue the opposite, making a mockery of of, uh, God's word that clearly tells us our witness, our preaching are God's designated means of salvation. 1 Corinthians 1, 21, 22 tells us that it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called Christ, the power of God. And in Romans 10, 14, I don't think this is in your notes, but how are they to hear without someone preaching? If you read that whole passage, it is clear God has means that involve us. Okay? So don't... But if God doesn't elect people to salvation, what hope do we have that they will be saved? Is it going to be because of your persuasive ability? 
If God's spirit can't do it through God's means, what hope do we have to resurrect the dead, bring sight to the blind, give hearing to deaf ears, enlighten people who cannot discern the truth? Consider what the results would be if election had anything to do with me or you witnessing or attempting to share the gospel with someone else. Would we really be willing to take that risk if it depended on us? But when we know the doctrine of election is true and that we are only the means doing what we were commissioned to do, the pressure is off. God causes and effects salvation. It's all about God. He uses means that he has given us in his word and we follow those means. And we can be gratified that it doesn't depend on us. Even if I may say a wrong word or don't have the right answers, God is in control. It's not ultimately up to me or up to you. Could you live, could you live, really, if you thought about it, with being responsible for someone's salvation, if your mistake could screw it up? Could you live with that? In light of this great truth about God's salvation, we can witness boldly, understanding that our witness doesn't have to be perfect. We can know that God uses stuttering, stammering testimonies to his grace. Those he is calling and has chosen will be saved. His sheep know his voice. All the Father has given to Jesus Christ will not be lost. John chapter 6, verses 39 and 40. Another question that comes up in sincere hearts, and I'm going to end with this. How can I know if I'm of the elect? Some people are troubled because they say, how can I know this? Having heard the doctrine of election, some genuine people ask the question, am I one of the elect? The answer is simple. Don't make it complicated. Do you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you believe you're of the elect? This is how to know you're God's elect. And if you need further assurance of your election, examine yourself to see if the fruit of the Holy Spirit exists to any extent in your life. Don't try measuring yourself or comparing yourself with someone else, like Pastor Peter. You'd be ashamed. There's an assurance of believers that we can know. The Lord gave me a word about a month ago about assurance. I kept waiting for the time to give it, and now is the time, so here goes. I had written it down and was going to share it, but I felt like this week as I was preparing, this was the time for me to give this word. Test this word against the scripture, and let, let the Spirit of God test it as well. For all those here who have believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior... Our loving Heavenly Father wants us to know we are His and He is ours. The Father wants us to see His overwhelming love by looking at the sacrifice of His dear Son on the cross. The Father wants to persuade us by the witness of the Holy Spirit with our spirit that our progress, though halting and uncertain and sometimes tinged with doubt, is assured by His grace our progress to look more like his dear son, even when halting and uncertain and sometimes tinged with our doubt, is assured by his grace. 
rid yourself of any thought that Christ persuaded the Heavenly Father to love us against the Father's will by his sacrifice on the cross. No, the truth is that God the Father loved those he called from eternity past. The cross was a demonstration of that wondrous eternal love, not a purchase of that eternal love. God's gift of faith to his loved children, a faith that truly believes that Christ's death on the cross was for us, was also designed by grace to convince us we are forgiven, adopted, and justified. We are his. God loved us from eternity past and demonstrated that love by the cooperative gift of his son as an atoning sacrifice on the cross. Not a persuasion to love, but a demonstration of that love. And we who believe are to be persuaded that our justification, our right standing before a holy God is both final and complete. God's gift of faith to us to believe that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross was for us must persuade us that we are counted as being just as righteous before the God of glory as Jesus Christ himself is righteous Because the only righteousness we truly have is the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. Look at these truths and rejoice. The completion of our hope draws near. Christ shall surely appear in the clouds to take his then glorified bride for himself for eternity. Rejoice. The completion of our redemption draws near. Heavenly Father, somehow this morning, somehow this morning by your spirit, by words that came from the spirit that didn't come out of my mouth to these assembled, those who listen later, convince us of the justice and the grace of your plan. And not to doubt it because it doesn't seem to fit our preconceptions about what just is and about what fair is. Lord, banish those thoughts. May we depend on your Revelation of yourself and of your monumental, earth-shattering plan to redeem for yourself a people of your own choosing for your own purpose. May we not shrink back because, oh, I'm not, if we are believers, may we not shrink back and think, I'm not sure because I did this last week or I, you know, I just am tempted in this way. Oh, God, banish those thoughts. You are working out your salvation as we will discuss, as will be discussed in the next few weeks. And you will complete it for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.